I think it's the loss of a dream. Yeah. Those have always been the ones I'm going to cry. Those are always the ones that are hardest for me. Yeah. It's the loss of possibility. And I, it goes contrary to my personality, which is I have someone that believes that there is possibility literally until the, all the lights have been turned off and the chairs yeah. are stacked up on top yeah. of the tables. Like I will hang on with my fingernails to possibility yeah. <laughs> until I have yeah. to be dragged out of a room. Right. And so to admit that a dream is dead is the most painful thing for me on earth and and to sort of renegotiate expectations which as you know i think any loss no matter how small that's what it is it's this having to recalibrate what you got from what you hope to get hey friends it's your host lisa kefauver here welcome back to grief is a sneaky bitch podcast but just in case you're new to the show yes this is a podcast all about grief My guests and I explore the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I certainly witnessed it over my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. But honestly, I'm in the midst of a different kind of grief this season of the podcast as I'm currently navigating breast cancer treatment. I'm wondering where you're at. Maybe you're in a new season of grief or just new to reckoning with old grief. Or perhaps you're hoping to learn how to better show up for the griever in your life. Regardless of the reason, I'm so glad you chose to be here with me and my guests because together we're reimagining grief one conversation at a time. My guest today, Laurel Breitman, is just, well, an absolute damn delight. In today's episode, we're exploring her beautiful brand new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss to Love. I appreciate so much the humor and wisdom and insight she brought to our conversation about the expansiveness of grief in her life. From the death of her father as a young adult, to lost loved ones, pets, a home in the wildfires of Northern California, and more recently, the death of her mother. Her adventurous spirit, which has taken her all over the globe, shows up in our conversation and in her approach to living fully in the wake of loss. Laurel is a writer, teacher, and secular clinical chaplain in training. She wrote a New York Times bestselling book, Animal Madness, Inside Their Minds. And honestly, she also has an amazingly cool job, one I would love to have, as the Director of Writing and Storytelling at the Stanford School of Medicine's Medical Humanities and the Arts Program, where she helps clinical students, staff, and physicians communicate more clearly and vulnerably for their own benefit and that of their patients. I can't wait for you to meet her. I cannot believe I get to say this, but welcome Laurel Breitman to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. It's amazing to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. This is, I I know a lot of your guests talk about it, but this is the absolute best name podcast that's ever existed. Yes. Y'all, I don't tell people to say that. It's just a thing. I appreciate it. It really is. Well, speaking of best things ever, I'm going to drop this in the show notes. If you all haven't, don't already have a copy of the book, you need to get it. You can't borrow mine, obviously, because mine is already flagged and underlined everywhere. Um, we're going to talk today 
about your life, but definitely um, about what looks like bravery and epic journey through loss to love. Um, this book is so remarkable. I've had such an honor to read so many memoirs in my life, but of course, through my work through the podcast and the um, vulnerability, the humor, the wisdom that you drop from your own experiences, from your what you've learned through your family, through Josie's place, which we're going to talk about, the Dougie Center, etc. It just you just weaved such a beautiful narrative. Not surprising, since we're going to talk a little bit later that you um, storytelling and narratives important to you, but just really exquisite. So I'm so excited to dive into it today. We're going to get into all things the book, but Laurel, uh, I'd love to start where we start all the time. And I think, I think you have maybe of almost of all my guests can appreciate this question, which is inviting you to sort of share an earliest memory of grief and loss, which might be one of the central figures that you share about in your story, or might be something else um, from your childhood with this notion of mine around how are the adults in your life modeling grief both those explicit messages that I think we think about often, but maybe just as importantly, the implicit and unsaid messages and behaviors and what that taught you when you faced what I presume was your major first profound loss, which was the loss of your father. But can you think of an early loss? Was it your dad? Was it something before that? Yeah, I think it probably was my dad, but it wasn't losing him. It was realizing that I was going to lose him yeah. and it was being told I was going to lose him. And Frankly, I can barely remember a time in my consciousness before loss and grief. Yeah. Grief is kind of a third parental figure that raised me up, I think, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, but I was probably four or five when he said a sort of serious goodbye to me for the first time. Like, hey, Lar, I, I may die. I love you. It's going to be okay. Um, and... You know, what What does a kid know about that? But I, I didn't have anything else to compare it to. So I would say from a very early age, grief was the air I breathed. Um, yeah. And it was sad and hard in all the ways. But also as a kid, again, I, I had nothing to compare it to. Um, yeah. So in, in one way, I'm so glad my parents were really honest with me. You know, there were no hiding of secrets in our household. My dad was honest to a fault. Um, he had a uh, terminal diagnosis when I was three and a half of osteogenic sarcoma, which is a really aggressive bone cancer. And he was given a six month prognosis. Um, so that's, that's right around that first goodbye. And then he didn't die. It's kind of a miracle. It turned out he had metastases in the early eighties. That was even more spectacular a victory um, than it is now, although it's even rare now um, yeah. to survive metastatic bone cancer that advanced. Um, and then, you know, we never knew how much time we'd have. So yeah. my childhood and adolescence was a kind of long series of goodbyes and then stays. Um, yeah. And the family culture around grief, you know, that's a big part of the book. Uh, it's, yeah. And I love this about your podcast. So, so many conversations around people's different ways uh, yeah. that, that you inherit. I think you inherit how to understand grief and loss the same way you inherit all your other traits. Yeah. For better or for worse. Yeah. 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 And mine was like, you are blessed. You are lucky. Yeah. This is terrible, but you're going to be okay. Um. A little it suck it worse. up buttercup or a little don't pity yourself kind of. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, You know, you don't have to worry about your next, where where your next meal is coming from. You have a roof over your head. You are healthy. Go forth, do all the things. It's going to be okay. Was the message? Yeah. Like you can either be sad or be grateful. You can't be both. Hundred percent. Yes. And in fact, being sad was a kind of betrayal of my father's superhuman strength. Like if we admitted that this was terrible or that we were hurting beyond like a little bit of crying when he would tell us goodbye, then it was, it was undermining of the family narrative, which was, we are okay. Your dad is very strong. It's going to be all right. Don't panic. Yeah. And also would force him to come to real grips with his own mortality, his own fallibility, his own lack of super human hero hood. Right. I mean, exactly. I yeah. Yeah. Which he didn't really want to do, you know, and, and I, I mean, Hey, who could blame us? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, as you well know, like everyone has to get through this, however they are going to get through this. And yeah. I, who am I to mess with someone else's coping strategy? I think if I could do anything different, you know, and if yeah. I had my own kids and was going through it, I think what I would do is, is a less either or scenario as you just put forth that, Hey, like you can be blessed. And also this can be terrible. What is happening to us? This can be sad. Um, And it doesn't mean that we're taking life for granted what we do or what we do have for granted. Yeah. I think that both and which I talk about, um, and I know you talk about touch on in the book is so important to sort of allow the the complexity. We just don't like that kind of complexity. We don't like to, um, uh, it feels too uncertain and it feels um, too complicated. And, uh, and I think like you, it's sort of the things we would do over again. I mean, I have a child that I raised that I don't think I particularly raised around her own grief and loss the way I would now, even, you know, knowing what I know now. Um, and I think that's, that's the, really the crux of it is just like, how do we allow people to hold the both hand? And I think, I'm curious for you and you have a younger brother, right? Is Jake younger? Yeah. It's not just that you faced this profound loss, which we'll talk about. Your dad was a heart surgeon, right? And he yes. had um, osteosarcoma when you were young, but lasted until you were uh, almost a graduating high school. So way longer than he thought, but it sounds like there was a series of goodbyes. And I'm wondering how you and your brother even talked with each other or processed in those years? Like, how did you come to the goodbye? And then, oh, but he's okay. He had an amputation or he made it through a new procedure. How did you, what was the sibling support relationship like or not? Conversations like. That's a great question. No one asked me about my brother enough. I tried to not write about him too much in the book. I know. I I know. You're like, I don't want to tell all your stuff, but yeah, then he could write his own story about it. Right. But he's such an important part of my life. Um, and I wouldn't have survived without him and I'm not sure he would have gotten through intact in the same ways without me. It was so nice to have a teammate, um, going through this, even though we were really different and, you know, I, I hate to make gender assumptions and stereotypes, but there was a big difference between uh, us. I was four and a half years older and I was a girl and um, I could, I could really talk and narrate my emotions and experiences in a way for better or worse um, that I think he really just acted physically and um, buried himself much like our father in projects. And, you know, to this day still does. Um, so our our experiences of grief and loss are obviously really different because we're different people. 
but yeah. in many ways, I think he and was developmental been, ages. You're at yes. different developmental ages too. Yeah. yeah yes. Sorry. Like I was 17. Um, when our dad died and, you know, he was 13. Those are really different ages. And I think in a lot of ways, even though it's a dim memory, I can remember a before my father was diagnosed. Um, I was, my consciousness was a bit more online in those early years. You know, he, he wasn't born until six months after my dad's leg was amputated and mm. he had his first diagnosis. So, you know, for my brother, it, it, that was it's just the only life, life. He knew was, was a dad who was sick and possibly always about to die. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll tell you something funny, which I had to be cut from the book. I wrote it in some draft or something. We were on a family flight. I think we were flying to the East Coast to see my dad's parents. And my dad and I were in one row of the plane and my mom and brother were behind us in another row. And I don't know, we're probably somewhere over the central United States. And I hear my brother start screaming like, I don't want to get married. Don't make me get married. He was like, I don't know, like losing his shit. Like I, he was probably eight, seven, six or seven. I don't know. Um, I don't even know where this was coming from, but he was like, what? They were reading a story or something. Anyway, he was like crying and like getting mad. And my mom was mortified. She's like, do people on this plane, like think I'm making this child, like talk about marriage or something. In any case, we ended up, we landed, we got to the bottom of it. It turned out like Jake was reading some sort of story or my mom was reading to him and he had just realized or in child logic way correlated, like, if you get married, one of you is going to die. And so he was like completely unmoored by this story, like the two people getting married, Um, you know, like to him that that's where this came from in some way that like married people, one of them is always dying. Um, And so his fear was not really that something was going to happen to our dad because he took that for granted, but he worried about our mom a lot growing up Um, and that something would happen to her. Um, because you know, like kids get really scared. They're, they're going to be left alone. I mean, I think that's the big childhood fear, even if you have two healthy parents, um, you know, so it marked us in, in different ways. I I can say my brother is married and is alive. Yes. Got over that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but it's, it's heartbreaking and also funny, you know, the beliefs that kids will develop about loss, um, and the, the, the sort of downside of magical thinking, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sure. we dealt with that differently. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. You share a little bit about Jake. I feel like you did a nice job of sharing a little bit about him, but not telling too much of his business and the story. One of the things that I appreciated, I mean, you, this is the subtitle of your book, an epic journey through loss to love is not an understatement. You have lived an epic life. I mean, just starting, I don't want to skip over, um, Now I'm realizing I don't know that I know what your dad's name is. And I'm sure you mentioned in the book, but I would love to bring him into the room with us. What was his name? Howard. Howard. Okay. I don't want to skip over Howard's illness and and the influence both his life and his illness and his death had on you. Because one of the themes that you talked about in the book was around guilt and shame, around the fight that you had sort of in, in your last conversation with him and not being there. And not understanding until much later about not being there for his death. But there are themes that you talked about in the book, this epic journey. You, I mean, went to the Amazon in Alaska and you 
studied fish and wildlife all over the world and you got your PhD. And I mean, like you've lived this epic, epic life. Is it the life you imagined when you were the teen with a dad who was sick and you've gone off to the boarding school? Did you, do you think if you had had a different experience with your dad growing up that you would have chosen this very epic life that you've lived? Oh, great question. You know, I, I the honest answer is I have no idea, right? Know, like, right? That's, we only get, that's the, we life only get the crucible yeah. we get. Like, yeah. so I don't know who I would be because yeah. I am who I am because of yeah. what happened to me. I, I will say this. I'm not sure that living in a household where the sort of executioner's axe is hanging over the dinner table every night, I'm not sure I would feel the urgency that I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And that urgency has been both a blessing and a source of great pain. You know, oh, yeah. like I live with a lot of anxiety and um, because of this, because I don't take a day for granted, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is wonderful. It's also terrible. Like terrible. some days yeah. you just want to watch like Real Housewives. I just want to chill popcorn. out and not think about existential questions today. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. I don't want to do meaningful things today. Is that too much to ask? You know, yeah. um, I just want to waste some time. I, yeah. You know, that's such a delightful part of life, too, is, is yeah. sort of aimless pleasure. So yeah. I would do more of that, I'd say, um, yeah. if I could do it over again. And I, I would like to spend the hopeful, what is hopefully the second half of my life um, doing less and enjoying more is, is what I'd like yeah. to do now. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate the way I even, you uh, listeners to the show know that I do not pre-plan my questions. I really just try to show up sort of with the knowledge of, of whatever book or conversation or context that my guest has. And so that was a slightly unfair question because the truth is none of us would know when we have that. And I so appreciated your answer in that. I think for any of us who grew up in a situation where there was chronic illness or mental health issues, or even sort of family histories of trauma, which I come from, or our own traumas, um, that sort of ambiguity, that sort of like low level unsafety, uncertainty, um, just can create this both and of what you're talking about, this sort of like urgency to like embrace life, live life, try things, be engaged, which has all kinds of amazing benefits to it. You know, you try new things, but it can also be such a weight and it's something to carry. You talked a lot in the book about hypervigilance, um, which I think, again, so many of our listeners can relate to. I can certainly relate to from many various things that have happened in my life. I mean, you know, I, I'm a child of a survivor of the Holocaust. So I think genetically I inherit a lot of hypervigilance, um, but early assault in my teens and losing my husband in the way that I did, I definitely walk through the world with hypervigilance. Can you t tell us a little bit about kind of the moment when you sort of or not the moment, but how you sort of discovered how your hypervigilance was impacting you, impacting maybe the relationships that you were choosing in your life, how that relates to sort of that early loss and the anticipatory grief around your dad. 
Yes. I mean, you're so smart. And I don't think that I had the that level of self-awareness until like maybe a few hours ago, you know, <laughs> and even then I can't hold on to it for very yeah. long. Like, I think hypervigilance, I just thought was my personality, you know? Uh, same, 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 same. I mean, I think it was in graduate school when I was sort of reading about it in my MSW program. I was like, oh, that's not a, that's just not how everybody is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is like, related to things that happened to me around loss and grief and uncertainty. Oh, and trauma. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, I think I just always was the person that planned ahead with snacks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> like I was the detail person, yeah. whether or not yeah. I was organized or got stuff done. I mean, yeah. that's a yeah. separate conversation. But the worrying about like, are we well provisioned? Is it going to, is this the right road to take? Like, like it goes, it extends into literally every facet of my life. Yeah. And, and then professionally, it was an asset, which is confusing, yes. right? Because we get rewarded sometimes for these coping behaviors that are not yes. the healthiest. Yes. And in my case, I was getting kind of un, untold rewards um, for my coping strategy, which I think was hurting my ability to be in relationships. And yet it was helping me professionally. So it really wasn't until my mid thirties, which is what most of the book is about. I'm, I'm, I'm glad uh, you asked me beyond my dad because actually in a lot of interviews, it just sort of stops there. It's, oh, yeah. it's a big story, but it's really only the first quarter That's of the just, book. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I want to give due, due credit to, because obviously it was an important influence in your life, but this, this is an epic journey that you've been on as we all are. But I think that was the beginning of some of these things showing up in lots of ways in our lives. And I think it's um, incorrect. We often like to make these as if the chapters don't actually connect into yes. this bigger story of our lives, but how could they not? How could it be yes. any other way? Yeah. And it's not progressive, right? I, I think in no. some ways the subtitle of the book is misleading. And so I should clarify that. I, I don't think you move on from loss yes. to love and then, yeah. and then, purchase, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you are done now. You are fully healed. Um, <laughs> yeah. so glad that's behind you. I mean, I think that runs contrary to literally everything yes. I believe. Um, yeah. but, uh, it was a journey through time and space. So in that way, it is progressive. Um, and it is a yeah. love story and it is also about loss. And I had yeah. to deal with some of my fears around loss to be open to love. And that's, that's where the subtitle works for me. Um, yeah. which is if I, I stayed in that unacknowledged place with my grief and loss, yeah. um, I really would have continued to not let anybody else in because I was so scared of losing someone or something or, or some place further. I didn't think I could handle it. Yeah. I mean, you talk in the book, of course, about the death of your dad. You talk about divorce, which is another kind of loss. You talk about the death of your dog in the very, you know, tra tragic way that that happened, the loss of relationships. There are these losses that we experience throughout our lives, including, by the way, sort of the losses of the, like, I don't know about you. I wonder, you know, thinking about the, the the kind the trajectory, the path we didn't get to take. So like, I never got to be a person in the world who wasn't hypervigilant. You never got to be a person in the world who wasn't keenly aware of symptomatology and whether that, that was some forecasting of a cancer that was to come. I wonder how you've even thought about that in terms of grieving sort of a version of yourself that you didn't get to become, or if that has ever been something that you thought about given what you've given the losses that you've experienced. It's so interesting. It's a kind of pain. I think 
I think that's the hardest thing for me to do. One of my heroes is Cheryl Strange. I've been lucky enough to get to know her too. And she is as magical and generous and wonderful in person as she is on the page. As we hope she is great. Right. Yeah. Like it's such a gift when you meet a hero and they, Mm -hmm. they exceed your expectations. Yeah. But she's written about this and in, she has a dear sugar column about it, about the ghost ship, um, that didn't carry us. So the life that you sort of see on the horizon, a parallel ship going somewhere else. And I love that metaphor. And for me, it's, it, it's almost hurts too much. Like, like when I see a little old lady, um, on the street, you know, sometimes I want to shake her to death, (laughs) which is a terrible thing to admit, (laughs) but it's like the idea that, you know, I see a cute old person and I'm like, they're not my cute old person. Like I haven't gotten to see and won't get to see either of my parents get old. Um, you know, when, when people, and now like, you know, I, 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 I suppose I'm spoiling it for readers, but I also lost my home in a wildfire and all of the things we cared about. And, you know, like seeing people who still have family photos left and, you know, there's all of these things where sometimes looking at that ghost ship for me, just it's still, even though I have spent so many years now thinking about grief and loss and, Mm -hmm. and doing my own version of work and everything, like it still hurts too much sometimes to entertain what might've been like, it takes my breath away. Like that is still the hard thing for me. It's not thinking about the happy times in my life. Um, I love thinking about uh, past happy moments. Like it doesn't hurt me at all to go back to those. What hurts is the thinking about what I could have had and don't. And I honestly, I, I, I got to back up to it. I can't even look at it. I can barely touch it. It's the peripheral. Just check in with a side eye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I didn't get that. That wasn't for me. So therefore like, I'm not even going to fantasize about it. Um, Laurel, I so appreciate your honesty about that. And you've been very brave letting me just sort of open end these kind of big, heady questions for you today. But I think you just modeled something really important that I sort of want to call out to the listeners. And I think is, you know, sort of resonant to me as you answer that question is that in some ways is a difficult kind of loss to kind of confront for lots of reasons, including which I think it goes back to maybe what we talked about earlier on, which is, um, Oh, that sounds like a lot of self-pity or that sounds like you're not being grateful for what you have and you should be grateful for the things that you did have. And why would you spend time, you know, feeling sorry for yourself that you didn't get to have your parents at your wedding or, you know, whatever the things are that you missed out on. And I, I, two things about what you said. One is both and you can be grateful for what you have and give space. And in fact, I think when we deny those not that we have to kind of sit in it or stew in it or bathe in it, but when we deny that those really were losses, that this is something that we had a reason to expect to be and didn't come to pass, yes. that we can uh, sort of metabolize it in a way that doesn't mean we carry it as this weight on our back all the time. And mm-hmm. what you're, to your point is, but it, those are such hard ones to do because it doesn't feel like there's some, you know, with, with grieving the death of a person or a loved one, I, and or even sort of like your home or belongings, it feels like there's something tangible and practical and you can even sort of create a ritual around it. Sort of it's hard and it sucks and it's hell and not, you know, but there's something to do about it. But these kinds of losses are hard to sidle up to because they're so 
amorphous. I don't know what the right word is there. Yeah. I think it's the loss of a dream. Yeah. Those have always been the ones I'm going to cry. Those are always the ones that are hardest for me. It's the loss of possibility. And I, it goes contrary to my personality, which is I have someone that believes that there is possibility literally until all the lights have been turned off and the chairs are stacked up on top of the tables. Like I will hang on with my fingernails to possibility until I have to be dragged out of a room. Right. And so to admit that a dream is dead is the most painful thing for me on earth and, and to sort of renegotiate expectations, which as you know, I think any loss, no matter how small, that's what it is. It's this having to recalibrate what you got from what you hope to get, um, or what you were taking for granted, even if you knew better, um, because we do do that as humans. Um, you know, I'm doing, the truth is I'm doing it with a book right now. Like, I, and it's crazy, but it's exactly what I wanted, right? Like I wanted to release it into the world. I wanted Oprah to call. If Oprah didn't call, I wanted Reese Witherspoon to call. If she didn't call, like I want, you know, like I wanted all of those things. Like it's not on the bestseller list. Is it, are people finding it who need it and then writing me? I understand why, but okay. Yeah. But, but whatever, you know what I mean? Because you can't control it because that's like saying to be sad when you don't become an astronaut or if you don't uh, become like a major league baseball ball player in the NBA. Like these are wild dreams that happen to just a handful of people. And yet we hope anyway. Um, And then if they don't happen, it is a kind of loss. And my problem is then I shame myself because I'm like, well, that only happened to 12 people a year, Laurel. Like who are you to feel sad that Oprah didn't call? Um, Again, both and it's like, yes, yes, you can have having the perspective that only happens to 12 people can be really useful so that we can stop being like, what's wrong with me? And we get to be sad that we weren't one of those 12 people. That's okay, too. Yes, exactly. When we come back, Laurel and I dive deep into how hypervigilance can show up for those of us who've experienced profound loss in really unusual ways, ways that don't always make sense to others or to ourselves for that matter. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. By the way, if you're loving this episode, don't forget to spread the love by posting about it on socials and go ahead and tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'd love to see you there. Hey friends, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, it would mean the world to me if you would do one or all of the following things, actually, if you'd like. First, follow or subscribe to the podcast. Following helps you because it means you won't miss an episode when it drops, and it helps me because then I know you won't miss it. You simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing the show. Hey, I'd love to stay in touch with you off the air too. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind the scenes content from the pod. Are you wondering when the heck my TED talk is going to drop? Yeah, me too. It's got to be soon, right? Or are you hoping for some sneak previews from my book that's dropping in spring 24? Maybe you just like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. 
I'd love to share all of that with you. Here are a few quick and easy ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not so regular newsletter by visiting lisakefover.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa K E E F A U V E R.com forward slash newsletter. It's called that because, like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, and my work as a grief activist too. And third, and you know the drill by now, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. But to me, and I don't know if this is true with you, like I experience all of those as if it's like I'm waiting for biopsy results. Like it's hard for me to feel book disappointment separate from something else. Like I just, all of those losses end up feeling a little bit alike and that they trigger my same like, uh uh-oh, greased track towards anxiety and despair. And Um, hypervigilance. I think it comes back because you talked about that even, you talked about that when, you know, you know, you had a date and a hookup and the person didn't call and it went from zero to like, you know, you could not stop thinking about them. And it was so upsetting. I could, by the way, so relate to that. I was like, well, did she, did we text about that back in the day? Cause I feel like I had the exact same experience once, but I think uh, to your point, when you've experienced, especially younger, when you've experienced such profound loss, which at its very heart, and you write about this so beautifully many times in the book is really a reminder that we don't have control, right? We do not have control. You talked about that in your work at Josie's place, which I want to make sure we talk about today that we don't have control. And so, and when we've had multiple versions of those experiences, there's something at the sort of nervous system, not that I'm, you know, expert in that, but at the sort of nervous system somatic level that those things to other people that feel like, Oh, well, that didn't yes. come to pass feels like a real threat to our very survival. You, yes. I wanted to read, this is reminding me of this passage you talked about with your friend, Connie, who I think is right. Who you yes. um, dated for a while and became friends. And you were, she and you were talking about kind of your kind of oversized reactions to things, uh, to a, a dating fallout situation with somebody else and about hypervigilance and that she sort of misunderstood. Is it okay if I read your own words to you? Is, oh, I'd be too, Yeah. Um, I'm going to sort of skip. There's sort of two sections I highlighted, but um, she was, you were sort of talking about the, the worry and, you, and she said, I think you do this to yourself. You get all excited and the person you're excited about may be excited too, but you go, don't give them time to express it because you're like right there ready, but they're not going to die. And you said, I'm not worried about them dying. You said later on, Connie, I decided was wrong. It wasn't that I went straight to thinking that a date had died on me. It was the uncertainty, the not knowing that I hated. It was too much like the time between scans or waiting for the pathology reports and the doctor to call with results. The infernal waiting room of the gods. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that made me tear up again. It made me tear up when I read it. <laughs> That's what you're talking about. That yeah. kind of what loss can do to so many of us is, is kind of wrangle up this 
hypervigilance and, and make uncertainty, which is the nature of the world and life, FYI, even though we like to pretend it's hate not. It. Yeah. Hate it. How rude of <laughs> the grand design of things. Yeah. But I think for those of us who experience multiple profound losses and traumatic events, we have that kind of vibration that's always underneath the surface. Yeah. yeah like every time I think I've shut the door to that waiting room, yeah. it like swings right back open. Like I cannot leave so it. There's like, rude. Right? So rude. Like I've done the deep work. I just, yeah. I'm like, okay, I did, I did the right therapy. I had the good conversation. I did yeah. the EMDR and then a new life <sighs> circumstance presents itself. And it's like, Oh, are you, did you figure that out? Yeah. Oh. You're right back in there. It's like, Let's we got try. chairs with name plaques, you know? <laughs> Let's try that one again. Let's yeah. try that one again. Yeah. But I think it's the human experience. And I think what's the antithesis, not wanting anything like not, yeah. not opening yourself up to disappointment. That's no real option, yeah. right? Yeah. That's its own loss. Yeah. So it, we have to, we have to live with it. I just, as you said, I, I hate it. You know, I want some plan. I want someone to tell me with complete assurance, um, which I'm choice put is this effort choice. forward and then this is going to happen. And ta-da. Yeah. 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 Well, you're sort of touching on this a little bit. You're touching on to me, uh, uh, the, the book, you know, this is what brave, um, what looks like bravery, which is this sort of notion of, um, even though we know there's uncertainty and that loss is going to happen, that we still step forward into the world. I mean, you experienced this profound loss of your father who decided to be in charge of his own death at the end of his life. Right. Um, yes. But just as you were graduating from high school, but you went and got on a boat into the Amazon river, like six months later, not really. I'm being a little cheeky, but that didn't feel like bravery to you looking back. What did that feel like? That side of that urgency to just go and try and do and be in the world. Cause other people have talked about that as you being brave, how brave of you to go off on your own, to try these epic adventures, which content has continued, you know, to this day. Yeah. Did you, you think know, about it as bravery at the time? Did you think about it as survival? What, how did you, how would no. you go back and think of that in your um, 17 year old brain, maybe or 18 year old brain? I think it was a lot of subconscious wish fulfillment for my dad is the truth. Yeah. I don't write too much about that in the book, but yeah. you know, my parents injected a lot of joy into our lives too, as we were growing up with this sort of looming shadow. And one of the things they did that I write about in the book is this thing called breakfast of the world. I know. I love and it so much. <laughs> they would surprise us uh, in the morning. It was horribly embarrassing to me at the time because often I'd have a friend spending the night and they would be in the traditional dress of any given country in the kitchen, um, cooking the food from that country. And, you know, often half dressed because they went to the effort to do this, but not to get like real costumes. So it was usually like something out of their closets and, um, you know, especially to my dad, but to both of my parents, um, both my brother and I understanding ourselves as citizens of the of the larger world was something yeah. really important to them. And we were growing up really rurally where we weren't exposed to um, anything besides like Mexican and Southern Californian, you know, culture. Yeah. And uh, that was wonderful. But they wanted us to see the world and understand that the world was bigger than we thought it was as kids. And since my dad was dying, I think it was especially important. He felt yeah. a lot of urgency himself around that, that I would be someone who would um, 
know to question and think bigger than whatever small town I happen to find myself inside of. Um, and that, that was just something important to him that I became a questioner and a traveler. And so as soon as I could, I started to leave and, and, and go elsewhere and see what I could see. And, um, so on the one hand, it was, I think he wanted that for me just because that's an amazing gift to, to give someone, but also, I was numbing myself, you know, I kept myself so busy that I couldn't possibly feel any negative feelings. Um, so yeah, I, I moved to the Amazon. I studied aquarium fish. I was like 18 and applying for grants. You know, my parents, by the way, told me that I could go do anything, but they wouldn't pay for it. Like I had to figure out ways to get it paid for. So I was doing odd jobs, you know, for research assistance all over the place. I went to Alaska. I studied grizzly bears. Um, and yeah, this was all before I was old enough to drink or right after. And I would come back and people would be like, wow, Laurel, like you're so brave. You're going as like a 17 year old or a 19-year-old or a 21-year-old like into these places by yourself um, with your camp stove and the reporter's notebook. And, you know, I, I, to me, it wasn't scary. You know, what was scary to me was like having to say goodbye to someone you loved before you yeah. were ready. Um, yeah. So I kept doing all these things and I'd say hurling myself like, you know, pasta at the wall <laughs> for better part of 20 years, um, at least 15 years. And yeah. it was pretty relentless in my pursuit of experiences and also shiny prizes to try and convince myself that I was inherently good because that mm -hmm. is not something I believed about myself. Um, so again, I, I think it was wonderful. I don't regret any of it. It was yeah. ridiculous fun too. I learned so much. Um, but I don't think it was coming always from a particularly healthy place. I think I, w I was acting in a way that to convince myself of something that I ideally just should have known. Except how could you have known? Right. I mean, just yeah. as like, you know, a, a fellow griever and a friend and someone who's also, <clears throat> excuse me, hard on myself sometimes, like, how could you have known? And I think, I imagine not everybody ended up going to the Amazon and, you know, doing quite the extraordinary things that you did. But I think for so many of us, when we face some profound, again, experience where we're out of control as some kind of profound loss, it might be a death loss. It might be some other kind of loss, a catastrophic injury or an illness. The, the internal drive to sort of run from that, to keep growing out of it, to move forward. I mean, I'm sort of in one of those states right now in my own breast cancer journey. I'm sitting here interviewing you for this podcast. I think it comes from a good place too, because this is my passion. I feel really um, like this is my calling and this is my precious time to be here doing this. And especially when we're younger, I think we, it feels like we have more control if we're moving and doing versus sitting and being with the hard emotions of our loss. The reality is that we didn't have control. We couldn't stop something bad from happening to somebody that we loved. Um, you know, I think is a, is a pretty natural instinct for each of us. Yeah. But we don't talk about that enough. Right. So it's like, not. and again, I think there's a both and so, you know, I often hear people, you know, people will come to me like, I don't think my sister is grieving right or my dad is grieving right and not realizing we all sort of, first of all, there's no right and wrong and that we do it differently. 
But because I think we keep, again, we try to move into these binary spaces, like you either sort of have to sit in a sort of cross-legged crying, you know, meditative position and, you know, hide yourself away for months, or you have to pull yourself up and get back to work and be productive and make meaning and do something in honor of your person. And as opposed to like the really messy space in between where you kind of go for a little while and then you pass out and cry for a couple of days and then you pick yourself back up and do it again. You know, right. So wise. It's so true. And I think, you know, it's okay. Like maybe your journey is that you need to numb out by, you know, overwork for 15 years and then you're finally ready. Like, I mean, I, again, like I totally agree with you. There's no right way. And I couldn't have gotten there earlier. I truly couldn't have. And I am lucky that my coping mechanism, you know, it didn't include a ton of self-harm, yeah. you know, like yeah. I, I mean, you're a coping mechanism. You got a PhD, you work at the Stanford, right. School yeah. of medicine, you know, you've like had some amazing adventures in the world. It's like, oh, that's your coping mechanisms got you some pretty amazing places. It was okay. But like, it would have been nice to date. You know, I feel like I was like, I was like yesterday when I had sex for the first, first first time. (laughs) I mean, not really, but you know, I'm, and I made up for lost time. The book is also about that, (laughs) you know, but I, like, I would go back and have more fun a hundred percent. Like I treated college, like I was an executive, you know, like, uh, Mm. like a, a CFO or something like a high stakes startup. Do you think Um, there was some like, not maybe at the conscious level, but that there was some like, I have to get everything out of life now again, in part because that was your dad was very driven, but also because just that sort of underneath experience of like, we don't know how much time we have. Yes. My brother has that too. Like it's real hard for us to imagine getting older because we haven't seen our parents do it. Right. And I have so many friends who lost parents young and live with the same kind of thing. And, you know, the weirdness that happens when you're the age that they were at their death and, you know, living beyond that. And I, you know, I, I hope to, to do that. I, I've certainly much older than my dad was at diagnosis now. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think that's also my answer to like, Oh my God, I'm going to die before long. So I better yeah. do all of it now. That's the anxiety. Do all the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So it's, on the, it's Again, wonderful on the one hand and, you know, painful on the other and maybe tiring, you know? Yeah. I was just going to say, and kind of makes you want to take a nap now when we think yeah. about it. Yeah. 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 Now I know not to shame myself if I want to take a nap. Like I used to just like shrilly scream at myself and I, I still do that, but I can at least see myself doing it. You know, like I just took a week off. Like my book came out two months ago. Like I have no business taking a vacation right now, but I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. So I took a week off. Big deal. Is it? Can we just let's, um, applause, applause. Yeah. So hard to do again, because for lots of reasons, not just because of our own internal drive from all of our losses, but because we also live in a culture that just encourages us to keep going, keep going. So yeah, I appreciate yes, that. Crazy. You, you just touched on shame and guilt and shame. And you, it's was a theme that you talked about quite a bit in the book, some of which was the last phone call you had with your father was an argument and he did try, choose to, um, you know, die and sort of in his own control in the end. And you weren't there, although you realized not until much later before your mom's death that he hadn't, the plan hadn't been for you to be there, but you talk a bit about guilt and shame in the book and the lessons you learned, even 
from the folks that you trained with at Josie's Place, which if you all don't know about it, it's much like Dougie Center, which many of you might know, Center for Children and Grieving, that you sort of went to as a full-grown adult, sort of hoping you could kind of get your child's grief, ooh, excuse me, going to as an adult, hoping you could sort of get your child grief things worked out. So we can talk a little bit about Josie's Place, but I wondered if you would talk a little bit about um, what you've learned about guilt being useful once and then done and how you learned that through your work at Josie's Place. Yeah, absolutely. Josie's Place saved me. Um, Just an incredible place full of incredible people, including the kids. Um, Yeah, it's a almost entirely volunteer um, run organization for grieving kids and adolescents and their parents in the Bay Area um, modeled on the Dougie Center. Um, And yeah, you know, we were in the, I, I wanted I heard about these programs and I called up and asked if I could do it, you know, as, like I'm a slightly like, older than a child. Cause you were yeah. in your thirties at this point. Yeah. Mid thirties. Childlike. Uh, yeah. They're like, that's creepy. No. <laughs> um, you know, but you can train to be a facilitator and a volunteer. So that's what I did. And I think, Really what it was, you know, it was so selfish. I mean, I hope I helped even one kid once for five minutes, but, but really it was a selfish experience in that I was able to meet these kids who were so beautiful and kind and silly and rambunctious and mad and not mad and, you know, everything. And I was able to see them really clearly and feel for them so clearly in a way that I never in a billion years would have been able to feel for myself. And so it was a sideways way into having empathy for me um, because I would see, you know, an amazing six-year-old girl whose mom had just died uh, blaming herself for leaving the hospital room um, to go to the bathroom or get a snack and not be there and yeah. not, and overcome with guilt and shame that she'd let her mom down, you know, and I would look at the six-year-old yeah. and see myself, you know, right. and, and realize like, oh my God, Laura, like you have been carrying these feelings of shame and guilt with you for years and years and years. And you were just like this little girl. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't that easy. You know, I couldn't let it go immediately, right? Um, we always but, find a way to exceptionalize ourselves and feel like we're not allowed to set that guilt down quite Exactly. Quite like, yet. oh, well, but so, I was yeah. 12, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so that makes it a totally different. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, but that was the beginning of yeah. a new world for me. And um, the facilitators or the leaders who taught us uh, who weren't volunteers, you know, would, yeah. would devote things like an afternoon in training to guilt, you know, which was so funny to me. I'm like, today we will do guilt. Um, But I took a ton of notes and it was fantastic. And, you know, what I learned from them was that when the kids express this to just ask them questions about it and be sort of quiet, calm receivers um, and to acknowledge that that guilt and shame was just their response to a situation they couldn't control. That if they, if this girl who was six blamed herself that meant that there was some reason in the world because yeah. to admit that she wasn't to blame also meant there was no reason for her pain. Yeah. There was no reason for the loss of her mom. And so therefore it was better to believe that she had messed up, even though that was so painful 
because the antithesis or what was actually going on was even more painful that you can lose people you love for no reason at all. Um, And it doesn't matter whether they're there or not, they're going to die. And, you know, so I think we protect ourselves with guilt and self blame when we're not ready to admit what's really happening. And so I saw that really clearly um, through them. And then the person who taught me that guilt was only helpful once was actually a birder in the Bering Sea named Susie Golodoff, who I adore. Okay, that's right. Okay. Um, But I met her during the time that I was doing this training with the kids. And um, yeah, she had just lost her husband um, of many decades and was talking to me about the experience of grief. And um, she that's what she said to me, that guilt was only helpful once. And that really just brought me to my knees. And she said, you know, it's it's really only helpful in that first instant in which you feel it, where you realize like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, and if you keep bringing it up after that, there's no point because you've already learned the lesson. So yeah. it's just a kind of painful, useless bludgeoning of yourself after yeah. the fact. That keeps um, you from picking up and moving forward. Yeah. Exactly. I wanted to read a passage if that's okay too, because I thought this one really struck me. I think it was you, you were talking about Susie and also the sort of what you were witnessing and what at Josie's place, what Pat was sharing with you about the sort of unrealistic responsibility for a death that often adults take, but for sure children take again, because we're particularly attuned to this magical thinking, you know, of that time. But you sort of talked about how you digested the lessons of that day and you said, I finally understood ever since dad died, I'd felt a guilt so deep and wide. I couldn't find my way across it. So I just sat down in the middle for more than 20 years, not ready to admit the truth. The people we love will die and there's nothing we can do to stop it from happening. But keeping the guilt with us, shoving it deep down into the electric muscle of the heart where it beats twice a second, a billion times till it stops when we do that makes a part of us die too. So beautiful. And we, I don't even want to step all over those words. They were so beautiful. I think it's just a reminder because I hear time and time again in my work with individuals speaking from listeners to the show, even other guests on the, on the podcast, this yearning to set down the guilt, but this fear about what's going to be left in its wake when we do, you know, like then what do I do with that space? Is that terror? Because there's that lack of control. There's that uncertainty, right. That is so profoundly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me wish, you know, I'm religious in my own weird way, whatever that looks like, which is a big part of the book too. But I think that's touch on that. Yeah. You know, it, that's where we have, that's where our work comes in to search for another kind of meaning. Yeah. Um, because there is just that like whooshing free fall of terror. Once you set yeah. that guilt down, like, well, if I'm not in control and if I'm not to blame, well, who yeah. the, in the hell is to blame here? <laughs> and then right? how do I even freaking wake up and go about yeah. my day? Do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, is that of interest to you to talk a little bit about, cause I am a, I'm a, I'm a similar person. I sort of, you know, genetically inherently Jewish, but not culturally or religiously Jewish. I was not raised with any sort of spirituality in my household too. And part of what I think has been a struggle for me and the finding my own way to my own kind of spirituality or faith has been, I think for many of us who are in that place, we sort of feel unmoored when we, you know, 
we don't have those sages and those wisdoms and those rituals and those practices to kind of moor us when we feel sort of when we set down the guilt and then realize, well, now what I yeah. free floating in this, what, what has been your learnings or journeys if, if that's something you want to explore? Oh yeah, sure. You know, I think I am actively searching now because what is there? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. there's no one answer. And also yeah. it's job security for, for mystics and poets yeah. and writers and podcasters. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Like we are trying to actively figure it out if we're living an honest life, if we yeah. want meaning. Um, yeah. and so, you know, I, I think my golden calves are like excellence and prizes, you know, um, like, and, and work. Um, achievements, yeah. you know, and I know better than to be motivated by those things. Yeah. Um, but then what's there? If like you're not motivated by fear, you're not yeah. motivated by like proving that you're okay or good or worthy of love, then what motivates us in this life yeah. if we're secular people? And, you know, for me, it's, I'd say <laughs> service in some weird, way you know yeah. like i hate to admit that because i'm like a writer and a teacher um but i do what before i sit down to write i ask for help before i give yeah. like i was just giving a talk at a a healthcare conference day before yesterday you would think like going on stage at a healthcare conference like yeah. would i need to ask the the creator slash god slash insert higher power for help yeah. it sure did <laughs> you know yeah. Yeah. like let me yeah. be a tool and a channel yeah. for wisdom that's greater than me that will help people. Yeah. And I, that, that to me is a calling. And you mentioned the podcast yeah. is a calling. I think you're doing the exact same yeah. thing with this. You are bringing sure. wisdom um, to people who are looking for it to help them get through the own hardest things that they're facing. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. to me, that's a religion. If ever there was one, right. Like, yeah. And, and part of it is doing it for non-human species and stuff too. It's like making sure that there's food in the hummingbird feeder. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm a farmer too with my family. So part That's of it right. is like a, being a steward of this tiny bit of landscape that I live with and, you know, um, holding the door open for people. <laughs> like yeah. I, I know it sounds silly and, and no. sort of chicken soup for the soul kind of answer, but I think you know, if, if we're not, if we don't have the commandments in the same way, like if we're not going to church on Sunday and being told what, what the point is, then we have to do it ourselves. And church for me is filling up the hummingbird feeder and then talking to a student and allaying their fears that they're not okay, yeah. you know, yeah. um, yeah. and that yeah. they're not a bad writer, yeah. <laughs> even if they are, you know, they're going to yeah. get better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like, yeah, I think each of us has our own ministry. Um, yeah. We just like don't that. get asked enough about it. So before the pandemic, I started training as a secular chaplain, which I didn't realize was a thing instead until I was part of a medical That's school. Right. Yeah. And I got so excited, the idea that you could be like a secular holy person, <laughs> even if you were by definition not holy not at all, <laughs> at all. You know, like yeah. I wanted to be like a... A heathen in a in a cool robe, you right. know, like that's just like I don't. And know And then they got a program for that, and they yes. had a program for that. I mean, most of the Brilliant. people in the program are part of an organized religion. Yes. Like yeah. I was the only weirdo, but um, 
but they didn't say no to me. And, and I do now know there is a, a number of secular chaplains precisely yeah. because a lot of us will, will be at the hospital. We are not of a faith tradition. Maybe right. we were born into one, but we're no And we longer. want somebody who might help us bring some wisdom, find connection to some meaning, but maybe it does not feel in alignment if to say, to, to sort of pick your prescribed. Yeah. Yeah. Religion. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, honestly, in my writing classes, and I do a lot of work with um, healthcare workers, I, oh, I'm so sorry. That's I turned okay. that off. I don't know why that's happening. Um, honestly, in my work with healthcare workers, which I spend a lot of time writing with yeah. nurses and doctors and medical students and others helping them write. And I often make people write prayers. Um, yeah. I make them write their own eulogies. I make them write their own statements of purpose, which I feel like we live in a culture where everyone can tell you like what McDonald's slogan or Target slogan is, but they can't tell you their own. Um, And I think that's a shame. And I think that that's a a downside of living in a largely secular society too. But I do think we can take some of those things um, from organized religion and apply them to our own messy lives ourselves. We just need a container and we need someone to ask us to do it. And we need some protected time. Um, And a lot of us don't give ourselves that, or we don't have the luxury for it. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I think that's such a, I appreciate that answer. And also I think too, when we face losses, sometimes it's only when we face these profound losses that we really kind of push ourselves to come to ask ourselves those questions. What, what is my purpose? How am I showing up at the world? Am I living in alignment with my values and with my integrity? What are the lessons that I want? And to your point, you don't necessarily have to wait till there's a profound loss. I mean, it sounds like in your work, you're inviting people to think about doing that. I interviewed recently Rabbi Steve Leader, who recently wrote this book about sort of asking the 12 essential questions, kind of getting at those same things. And I think it's just a reminder for all of us that we don't have to wait for the bad, the next bad, hard thing to happen in our lives to help us sort of attune to purpose, meaning, faith, however you want to talk about it to sort of help us, help guide us. Because the truth is, it is still going to be a chaotic, crazy world, and there's so much we don't have control over. So if we can then find some through line that might be our purpose or what brings us joy or micro joys, as Cindy Spiegel calls them, or moments in our lives, then, and then that's where we're, that's how we're showing up in the world. I love that. As we were winding down our conversation, I asked Laurel to explore what she learned from the opportunity to be with her mom at the end of her life and how her parents' love of storytelling was a gift to her and one she got to return to them both at the end of their lives. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I absolutely love hosting this podcast, full stop. And did you know that I have the good fortune of showing up other places too? I write about grief, uh, including my forthcoming book, Grief as a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming this spring. I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief in the School of Social Work at UT Austin. One of the favorite ways I show up in my mission as a grief activist is when I deliver grief education and addresses to workplaces and in events across the country. I recently delivered my Grief 101 workshop, which I call Grief Happens, Let's Talk About It Already, to a Fortune 500 investment firm. Y'all, my heart burst wide open when I received this note from the vice president. 
Your workshop today was amazing. You are a true example of strength and compassion. Thank you for helping us foster a culture of care for ourselves and our peers. Yes, they get it. They understand that we bring our whole selves to work, and that includes our grief. Notes like this make me so hopeful as I'm seeing more and more organizations recognizing that truth and committing to learning so that they too can create a culture of care. In case you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, why not drop me a note? You can visit me at lisakefavor.com. One of the things that I wanted to touch on before we begin to close the conversation, which as I said to you before we went on air, I feel like we could have this conversation for two hours. So maybe someday we'll do a part two or we'll do something live together in person somewhere. That but would be fun. Let's do it. Be fun. Let's do it. Yes. Okay. All right. We're going to talk about that. I would love that. Because one of the things that really struck me about your epic journey, about the way that you experienced um, moving forward with these losses, as I said, there was a loss of your dad and divorce. And um, you, as you talked about, your family home was consumed in a wildfire. So we're talking about all manner of losses. But <sighs> Just as the pandemic came, your mom was diagnosed also with cancer, Um, and you got to have a very different experience, it seems to me, not just because you were an adult versus a child, but what it was like to walk alongside someone um, who also decided to to take control of their death. Your mom also medically assisted um, death um, is legal in the state of California, which it wasn't at the time of your dad's death, but you got to have such different experiences. And I think it's really struck a chord for me when I was reading the book. Um, My listeners may have heard years ago, I shared um, when my husband passed, um, was misdiagnosed for a year, found out he had a, a brain tumor had surgery, collapsed into a coma. And so when and when it was time to take him off life support, you know, I laid with him until he passed and I talked to him, but he couldn't hear me. He didn't know. I didn't feel he could hear me. I couldn't hear from him. And just a few years later, I had the honor and heartache of being uh, with my friend Joe when he passed from muscular dystrophy. But he got to tell me that it was time for him to go. And I got to tell him that it was okay and that I loved him and that I would be there until the end. Oh, I'm going to be cheerful. And I feel like being with Joe when he died, it was like, and Joe and Eric were friends. It was like such a gift because I got to experience this kind of death the way Joe wanted it. I got to communicate what I wanted to. He got to communicate. And it's something I never had with Eric. And there was just something about the story that you shared about being able to really honor your mom's wishes, be present, create ritual that I wonder how that felt, not just for the experience of being in a witness to your mom, but also in contrast to the experience that you had of not being there at the time of your dad's death. I wonder what you reflect on about that time and that contrast maybe. Well, first, thank you for telling me about Joe um, yeah. and Eric too. 
you know, it is, it is such an insane gift, isn't it? It's such it's, a weird thing. It's, to say, and it's such a but, word, weird thing yeah. to say that it's a gift to be with people when they die, but it is. Yeah. And it's it one of those, be. if you know, you know, yeah. sorts of things, you know, know, as the kids say. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, because my experience around the loss of my dad had included a lot of shame and guilt on my end, yeah. I knew going in and also because, I mean, of who my mama was and what she wanted that we weren't going to do that again. You know, that like I'd learned the hard way. Um, And so had she, you know, and, and on the one hand, like my dad taught us how we could do it, like how it was done. I mean, he, he had a good death in in many ways. It's just that death sucks, (laughs) you know? And like, even when it's good, if you love life, like, you don't want it to happen, you know, like, so uh, when people now talk about like a good death and, you know, there's so much conversation around that. And I just worry sometimes that we're just like trying to decorate a room that doesn't need to be decorated. And it's just one more thing we have to do well and that there's a right and wrong way to do it. And if you're not doing it right, then I'm failing at that too. Yeah. Yes. Like must everything be aesthetic? You know what I mean? Like, like it's okay. Um, We don't need a Pinterest board for our good death. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. It's just yet another way to punish ourselves. And um, that being said, you know, for my mom, I knew, and we did, we had the blessing of time. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't out of nowhere. We had a couple months at least, you know, Um, and we made sure that people would be able to say what they needed to say um, yeah. to her and that she would be able to do the same. And so, and then the experience, you know, of her, yeah, doing medical aid and dying, which thankfully is yes, now legal in California. Um, she, she was a very bossy, powerful woman, you know, <laughs> and she had a she, lot to say about how things were going down. For yes, sure. and in all things, I yeah. I just recovered our couch. It took me this long. She was like decorating the house, and she was like dying. And did I get to weigh in on what color the couch was? Even though I, she was dying. No, I did not. <laughs> did not. You know. Anyway, um, you, if you're opinionated and powerful, it it doesn't stop at death, right? Like like right. you are also going to orchestrate exactly what you want if you are lucky enough to have the capacity to do yeah. so. And so yeah. that was her. Um, that was her a hundred times over. So I will say losing her sucks. Like I miss her so unbearably much. Um, she was so healthy. She was in her early seventies. I really thought we were going to have 20 more years together. Um, I miss her beyond words. And also like her death didn't scar me. Like her death itself wasn't sad. The experience of her dying was beautiful and often funny and weird and mysterious. Um, But I don't use it to hurt myself like I did with my dad and and like I have with other losses. And I would say that was because I'd, you know, been through it before. Um, And also, and because she had, and she was willing to talk about what she was going through and she was really open. And, you know, as we've talked about, everyone has their own road. You you can really only do this with someone who is unflinching before the yeah. world yeah. and who isn't scared of difficult conversations yeah. um, and who isn't scared of death, frankly. And, and so. And who wasn't trying to maybe sort of be a superhero. We talked in the beginning of your dad wanting to see himself and wanting you to see him in this kind of like strong way and didn't know how to be both 
strong and vulnerable and, and like show pain, but your mom was able to be in the both and. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like I think to face death without fear is the ultimate test of vulnerability. Yeah. You know, and that, and it's so courageous. It's so courageous. Yeah. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and certainly lots of people do that. You don't have to do medical aid and dying to face right. death with bravery yeah. and courage. Yeah. But um, certainly that's what we were able to do with my mom. And, you know, it, it taught me so much about what's possible. And I don't live with, I live with missing her, but I don't live with sadness around the end of her life. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And t- t- Howard was your dad and remind me of your mom's name. Lynn. Lynn. Just want to bring Lynn into the room too. I appreciate that. And she got I'm sure to, she's already here. She's already here. She's been like, Laurel, did you need to say that? Or Lar? Just, they call, call yeah, Lar. yeah Lar. Like, did you need to say that? Uh-huh. She got to meet your partner, your husband, Josh, right? And she did. And yeah, she got to sort of see into a little bit into the future of your your life. And she got to read this book or a version of this book. Is that right? She, yeah, actually, she read up until the part that's about her. So yeah. she, which is like the last quarter of the book. So yeah. she read three quarters of the book. Yeah. And in fact, this isn't in the book. I had took it out because my editor thought it was like too much, which is funny. I mean, this well, is we can put funny, it in right? here. Yeah. Everything goes here. At Grief is a sneaky bitch podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, when you're, as you know, cause you have this book coming out, like yeah. when you're writing about your own life, it's yeah. so funny when people are like, that's actually like two on the nose, Laurel, or that's too much. Yeah. You need to take yeah. that out. Cause people won't believe it. I'm like, this was my but life. It, it's happened. Yeah. Yes. So the day she died, we didn't know, you know, she woke yeah. up that morning. She was like, this is it. This is the last day. I'm not doing it anymore. This is we're doing this. Get ready. Yeah. And she really, really wanted to finish my book. That was one of the things she wanted. And I think, you know, what she really wanted was for me to finish writing it. Um, yeah. But she wanted to finish reading it. And so um, before she took her medication, I read her the end and the, part that I read her was um, the part that takes place in New Mexico, which uh, readers will learn. I, oh, I spent your some time uh, yeah, out cast. in oh. northern New Mexico um, with something, an organization called the School of Lost Borders and did a solo fast alone um, in the wilderness for five days and had a vision there. And it was of both of my parents, healthy yeah. And a young me, and I, I didn't understand it at the time. And, yeah. um, but they were together and they were so happy and they were in the house that had burned down. And I got a glimpse of, you know, what I consider like a parallel life as yeah. opposed to like an afterlife. Yeah. And that's what my mom read, you know, or that's what I read to her aloud. Um, and then, you know, we talked a little bit and then we went up, we, my brother and sister-in-law went and made her medication. Um, but I, that was wild to me, you know, like I read my, to my dad as he was dying and I, I got to read to my mom and what I got to read to my mom was a little bit of what I had learned from her, you know, about what's possible in this world. Um, and so it was such a gift, um, you know, to have them teach me how to be a storyteller and then be able to share with them the stories that had meant the most to me um, as they left this place uh, was just a wild kind of bookend. I love that so much. I want to read that passage that you talked about, about the parallel worlds, because I, that was 
that just really struck me so beautifully that we can, we might not have faith or we might not have organized religion, but we might not do a vision cast where we have these sort of visions. Although the way you described it, you definitely made me want to give it a try maybe after this whole cancer journey that I'm on. But you said, there's a world in which we are whole and it runs parallel to ours. The people that we love exist there and we can almost reach out and touch them. If we just get quiet enough, they never leave us. We are together always there too are the selves of ours that need healing and all the things that we love and have lost. So beautiful. I love this notion of that, of that parallel world and that you got to not just experience that, um, but to share that with your mom, like what a gift to give her as she transitioned into wherever it is that we go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So beautiful. It's so nice having you read it. God, I wish you were around for the whole editorial process. <laughs> Everything. My God. All right. Well, next go around. We'll just yes. be book buddies on our next book journeys. This that would be amazing. great. Um, Laurel, I hate saying goodbye for this conversation of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, but we're going to have other ones. Listeners, what looks like bravery, an epic journey through loss to love. You need to pick up a copy of this book. You are going to love it. It's going to be as dog-eared as mine. Um, it's just so beautiful. And pick it up for a friend, too. I so appreciate the wisdom and the humor, which you showed in our conversation today, but I don't think I highlighted enough the humor, um, the honesty, um, and the journey that you took us on in the, in the telling of your story. I just so appreciate that. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. It is such an honor to talk to you. And I'm just wishing you so much love on your own epic journey. Thank you. Well, friends, there's another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast in the books. Don't forget, if this episode or the show in general means something to you, head over to your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcast and leave a five-star rating and write a review. I truly would appreciate it. And if you want someone else to feel seen and held in their grief, why not share this episode with them? I also want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>